Hello and welcome back to the adventures of Lola Badiola. In the last chapter, the agent and Park touched down in Madrid. In this chapter, we're going to find out what happens when they arrive at the offices of Interpol. Here we go. The Adventures of Lola Badiola, Chapter 50 Mistaken Identity The agent and his companion had no problems passing through Spanish customs. Park's fake identity and false passport had been fully integrated into the International Passenger Database. The immigration officer let them through without a second glance, and they headed straight to the carousels to await their equipment and suitcases. Park walked around the Adolfo Suarez airport in a daze, mesmerized by the undulating architecture of the Richard Rogers-designed building. In the agent's opinion, there was no more impressive welcome to a city than this iconic masterpiece, a vibrant and colorful statement of Madrid's growing influence in Europe. Their baggage arrived without any delay, and they made their way to the exit of the airport. It was a bright morning, clear and dry, and it put a smile on the agent's face. He always loved returning to Madrid from his travels. It felt like the dust was being wiped from his eyes. The two men jumped into a white taxi waiting at the exit to the airport, and the agent instructed the driver to go to an industrial estate to the west of the M40 ring road. Interpol had built its European headquarters in an anonymous, functional building that looked more like a warehouse than a high-security centre for police intelligence. It was here that Buck and his team would be waiting for them, eager to hear all the details of the mission and meet their prized asset. As the taxi travelled along the motorway, the agent looked out the window at the everyday life occurring around him and started to relax. His package was sitting beside him safe and sound, and his payday was assured. He would have the opportunity to transition into a new and less precarious career, one that was fit for a husband and father. The taxi dropped the two men and their baggage at the entrance of Interpol. A golf cart picked them up and carried them through two sets of security gates before they finally reached the main entrance of the building. Two armed guards escorted them from the hallway to a large conference room on the fourth floor of the building. One of the guards placed his palm on a censer, and the door of the room slid open. Inside the room were half a dozen people standing around chatting. As soon as the agent entered, the talking stopped, and everyone looked in his direction. James Buck, a tall, thin man with a big nose and pinkish cheeks, stepped forward. "'Pleasant trip?' he asked ironically. "'Beautiful. I highly recommend it,' replied the agent." knowing that Buck had never spent a single day of his career in the field. He was a functionary, a desk jockey who used freelancers to do all the dirty work. The two men shook hands, and then Buck looked at Park. So, here he is. The Englishman inspected the package like a zookeeper might inspect a newly acquired baby panda, with eagerness and insecurity. Right, let's do the photos, fingerprints and irises. He and two of his colleagues led Park into another room for a complete physical examination. It was a standard routine that took about an hour to complete. The agent helped himself to a cup of coffee and took a seat at the conference room. A short, bald-headed man with glasses sat down opposite him. Here's the paperwork, usual stuff, 
he slid a thick document across the table. The agent took out a pen and, without reading any of the notes, started signing the bottom of each of the sheets. He had been through this process several times before. Of all the intelligence agencies that he worked for, Interpol was the most bureaucratic. The debriefing process took several days, required dozens of interviews and a huge pile of paperwork. Furthermore, they operated 90-day payment terms. He wouldn't receive his money for at least another three months. The agent was almost halfway through signing the document when Buck and his two colleagues burst back into the conference room. "'Is this some kind of joke?' asked the Englishman aggressively. The agent put down his pen and looked up. "'What do you mean?' "'Who the hell is this guy?' "'Kim Day One, said the agent, perplexed by the line of questioning. Buck was momentarily lost for words. His face went bright red, and then he consciously calmed himself down. "'Okay, we have a serious problem here.' "'What is it?' asked the agent, starting to feel concerned about the turn of events. "'Where did you find this guy?' I found him sleeping at the pickup point on the North Korean side of the Yalu River. Buck looked like his head was going to spontaneously combust. You got the wrong guy. This is not Kim Day One. What are you talking about? Look at him. Look at his body. Look at his hands. He's a farmer. You were meant to bring back one of the world's most dangerous hackers, and you've delivered us some random North Korean peasant. But that's not possible. Buck threw a file onto the table in front of the agent. It was a comparison of the physical information they had on record for Kim Day One and the physical examination that they had just done on the man the agent had delivered. Nothing matched. But this guy speaks English. He's well educated. He saved my life. He's also the wrong guy. Buck put away his pen and picked up his documents. Your mission has failed. You will need to meet with the assessment committee at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. You will receive an invitation with all the details in your email inbox. Buck opened the door and left the room. His team followed directly behind him. The agent was dumbfounded. He looked at the little North Korean, still unable to believe that he wasn't Kim Day One. Then he jumped to his feet and ran after Buck. What do you want me to do with the package? Buck stopped in his tracks and turned around to face the agent. He's your problem? I suggest you contact the Korean embassy in Calle González, amigo, and start the application process for asylum seekers. The agent was lost for words. Buck continued, And by the way, don't even think about sending us an invoice. And with that, Buck and his entourage disappeared down the corridor. The agent walked slowly back to the interview room, his head spinning. Was it possible that he had picked up the wrong guy from the banks of the Yalu River? Was it possible that he had confused one Korean for another? The man he had brought back was indeed small by East Asian standards. His hands were rough, and he looked like a farmer's son. However, he was extremely intelligent and seemed to understand everything that was happening around him. The agent returned to the conference room where Park was sitting between the two security guards. The Korean had a guilty look on his face, like a kid who had just been caught stealing candy from the sweet shop. I don't know who you are, little man, but I'm going to find out. The agent gathered all his things and then grabbed the Korean and led him out of the conference room, followed closely by the guards. There's one thing I do know. 
You're not some random North Korean peasant. So here we have a case of mistaken identity. The secret agent believes that the person he has transported from North Korea is Kim Dae-won. The team from Interpol believe that this person is a random North Korean peasant. And this is quite understandable. Remember, Park's physical characteristics do not match the description that Interpol have on their records. Furthermore, Park is the child of North Korean peasants. So he doesn't look like somebody who works in the North Korean government. And so the secret agent is stuck with Park for the time being. And we are going to find out how their relationship develops in the coming chapters. But right now, let's do some advanced English, starting with the following expression. Park walked around the Adolfo Suarez airport in a daze, mesmerized by the undulating architecture of the Richard Rogers designed building. If you are in a daze, you are unable to think clearly, often because of shock or surprise. And this is how Park feels as he walks around the Adolfo Suarez airport. For those of you who have not landed in Terminal 4 of the main airport in Madrid, let me just say that this building is a stunning work of architecture. It has an emotional impact on me every time I pass through it. It is therefore no surprise that Park, given his background, is overwhelmed by this experience. Okay, let's move on to some more vocabulary and expressions. Have a listen to this sentence again. He was a functionary, a desk jockey who used freelancers to do all the dirty work. We have two points to discuss from this paragraph. What is a desk jockey? And what does it mean when you do all the dirty work? Okay, you know what a DJ is, right? Someone who is responsible for playing the music at a club or a party. Now, DJ stands for disc jockey. Because in the old days, these people would put a disc onto a record player or into a CD player in order to play the music. So desk jockey is a minor modif modification of the term disc jockey. And here we simply mean somebody who spends all their time in an office sitting at a desk. The term is used in a negative sense. It implies that the person is inactive. They lack dynamism. So in our story, James Buck is a desk jockey. He spends all his time in the safety of the offices of Interpol. And he employs freelance spies to do all of his dirty work. In other words, to do the unpleasant or difficult duties that he doesn't want to do himself. Do you have a boss that expects you to do all the dirty work? Or do you have a boss that likes to get their hands dirty? In other words, help you 
with all the unpleasant but necessary duties that need to be done. Okay, here's another adjective to enrich your vocabulary. Listen carefully. Buck opened the door and left the room. His team followed directly behind him. The agent was dumbfounded. He looked at the little North Korean, still unable to believe that he wasn't Kim Dae-won. Dumbfounded. This is a very cool word. The word dumb, spelt D-U-M-B, with a silent B on the end, exactly the same pronunciation as thumb on my hand. The word dumb has a couple of meanings. The first implies a low level of intelligence. The second implies an inability to speak. So in the old days, we would say that somebody who is deaf and dumb is unable to hear or speak. So therefore, when you are dumbfounded, you are so shocked by what you have experienced that you are literally unable to speak. You are rendered speechless. So the agent is dumbfounded by the news that he has got the wrong guy. Okay, let's move on to something completely different and discuss a business issue that makes me very frustrated. Have a listen to this again. Of all the intelligence agencies that he worked for, Interpol was the most bureaucratic. The debriefing process took several days, required dozens of interviews and a huge pile of paperwork. Furthermore, they operated 90-day payment terms. He wouldn't receive his money for at least another three months. In our story, Interpol is a bureaucratic organisation, meaning that it's very structured with many layers of hierarchy. And it operates on 90-day payment terms. In other words, its service providers get paid 90 days after they have finished providing their service. What do you think about 90-day payment terms? What do you think about a company holding back payment from its suppliers? Payment that it owes for 90 days. It makes me very frustrated. This is how I see it. The multinational company at the top of the supply chain decides that they are going to implement 90-day payment terms. Then every other company in the supply chain does the same thing. They think, well, if the big company is paying me 90 days late, then I'm going to pay my suppliers 90 days late. Until you work your way down the supply chain to the smallest company who wonders what on earth is going on. That person or that company at the bottom of the supply chain is normally a freelancer, somebody who's self-employed or a small and medium-sized business. That person at the bottom of the supply chain is me. It's like the big boy in the school playground taking the lunch of one of the smaller boys 
who then takes the lunch of an even smaller boy until you get to the smallest boy in the playground who has no lunch. I did some research in this area a few years ago because one of my Spanish clients who was paying me almost immediately got taken over by a US multinational company and they moved their payment terms to 90 days. So in reaction to this, and my frustration in being told that I would be paid 90 days after I provided my English language classes, I did some research. And this is what I found out. In 2013, one of the biggest multinational consumer product companies moved from a 60-day payment to 75-day payment terms. And in doing so, they added $1 billion in cash to their balance sheet. Fantastic. Great for them. But wait a second. Where did that $1 billion of cash come from? It came from the balance sheets of all the small companies at the very bottom of the supply chain who were now receiving their money 15 days later. Extended payment terms like this are simply a transfer of cash from the smallest and most vulnerable in the business sector to the biggest and most powerful. A very famous international food company has payment terms of 120 days for some of its suppliers. I think that's completely unethical. Executives at big companies don't like to comment on this issue and neither do their suppliers for obvious reasons. The suppliers don't complain publicly because they don't want to lose the business. I think that any company operating 90-day payment terms or 120-day payment terms cannot claim to have corporate social responsibility. That's my view on the issue. How do you feel about this? Okay, we don't want to end this episode feeling frustrated and angry. We don't want to end this episode on a negative. So let's just discuss one final and fascinating point about communication. Listen to this paragraph again. James Bach, a tall, thin man with a big nose and pinkish cheeks, stepped forward. Pleasant trip? he asked ironically. Beautiful. I highly recommend it, replied the agent. Pleasant trip? he asked ironically. What is irony? What is verbal irony? Well, in this case, verbal irony is when you say the opposite of what you mean. So when it's raining, you say, lovely weather. When you get fired from your job, you say, wonderful. And when a presentation is really boring, you say, fascinating presentation. And in this case, when the agent returns from his dangerous assignment, 
his supervisor asks him if he had a pleasant trip, to which he replies, Beautiful, I highly recommend it. Both protagonist and antagonist in this particular scene are speaking ironically. So why do we do this? Why do we say the opposite of what we mean? Well, it emphasizes the point that we are making. It really makes the other person think. They can't just ignore us. It's also a powerful way to connect with our listener. We're speaking in code, and they understand that code. They can read between the lines. And that means that we are part of the same tribe. It brings us closer together. And also, don't forget, irony can often be quite funny. The problem is, sometimes it's not clear whether we mean what we say or we mean the opposite of what we say. Irony can lead to misunderstandings. Because some people will interpret what we are saying literally when we are actually speaking ironically. They will think that we actually believe the weather is lovely. That we believe that getting fired is wonderful. That we believe that the presentation is indeed fascinating. And in the case of our story, they will think that the agent and his supervisor both believe that North Korea is a lovely place to visit. The power of verbal irony is also its greatest weakness because it connects you with people and cultures who understand irony and distances you from people and cultures who don't. So, is it ever appropriate to use irony in a business situation? Personally, I think it's extremely dangerous to use it in written English, in emails, in reports, as it's way more difficult to detect. And I think it's also dangerous to use it when you're speaking with people you don't know very well, particularly in an international environment. But in an informal business situation, I think it's perfectly acceptable. In fact, it makes the art of communication much richer. What do you think? And with that question, we come to the end of today's session. If you'd like to improve your business English in a more formal environment, please join Marina and me for our live and interactive sessions with Club Grattan. Just click on the link in the chapter description of your podcast platform. We hope that you can join us for the next episode. Until then, keep bringing English into your life. And remember, always pay your suppliers promptly. Promptly.